I'm going to hand over now to Pastor Gregory. Don't play in 2020 <laughs> peak. Have a good one. Goodness. <laughs> Thanks, Langa. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Who's glad they came tonight? Wasn't, hasn't God been awesome? Amen. Um, also, just a shout out to everybody. If you brought something to share to our event last week, please put your hand up. Don't be shy. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. It was way more of you. We had more food than we knew what to do with. It was great. And so for the next event, make sure you bring food. Uh, let's just see. I don't think this is happening, guys. Sorry. Um, so we are busy with our Be Different series. Um, and if you have been at any of the sermons we've preached in this series, you would have realized that it is really important that as Christians, we look different from the world. That as Christians, we respond differently to life, to stuff in our lives than the world does. We have to be different. And tonight, we're going to talk about making friends. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're looking at me and you're going, oh, Pastor Greg, I've got a thousand friends on Facebook, half a million followers on Insta. I know all about friends. But again, we have to have a very different attitude about friends and making friends than the world does if we are Christians. And making friends is very important in the Bible and in your Christian walk. Um, every single one of us has been created with an innate need to be seen and to be recognized. When we feel like we are seen, when we feel like we are known, it creates such a space of belonging in us. And every one of us really wants to be seen. Psalm 17 verse 8 says this, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Did any of you make it to the Jesus at the door training we did this last weekend? So you, you've heard, yeah, let's give the Lord a hand. That was amazing. Um, just, just to say this, 176 people gave their lives to Jesus in one hour when we went out on the streets and practiced what we had learned. If you didn't make it, I want to tell you, as somebody who whenever I hear about evangelism training, I'm like, oh, Jesus, why? And I go because I'm a pastor and I have to. Um, on Friday night, for, for the first 30 minutes, I was literally just sitting in the chair over there praying that the Lord would heal me of past trauma from when I tried to reach out. But this thing is completely different. This thing is so simple. And Scott McNamara, who ran the leadership thing, he was talking to us about apples. And he was saying that really what we're looking for is apples that are ready. Apples that when we shake the tree, they're just ready to fall, and we're just there to catch them. That it's not something we have to work out or stress or strive on. We just ask the Holy Spirit, who's ready, and we go after them. I'll talk a bit more about that later. But this phrase that has become an English idiom, the apple of my eye, when we say it in English, it means that you're my sweetheart. You're the thing I desire most. You're the thing I want the most. And that's what it means in the Hebrew. But if you think about it, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Have you ever stared into anybody's eyes? Some of, okay, okay, some of you are at pre-marriage. I can see you're nodding your head. Well, if you have ever stared into somebody's eyes, how long does it take before you see yourself reflected in their pupil? Have you ever had that experience? Now you're all trying it. Can you see yourself reflected in their pupil? Well, this is what God is saying to us. He says, I am looking you straight in the eye, 
and I want you to see yourself reflected in me. God created us with a need to be seen, and then he is the one who sees us first and foremost. As I said, when we feel seen, when we feel like we are knowing, there is a deep sense of belonging that comes because of that. And obviously, in an ideal world, the first place we would have the sense of belonging is where? In our families, through mom and dad, and then through our families. And ideally, parents would recognize us for who we are, not for what they want us to be later on in life, but for the uniqueness that we carry, for the uniqueness of our call. Some of you need to phone your moms and dads after the service, and you need to say one thing to them. You need to say, thank you for keeping me alive. Moms and dads are amazing. They really are, because they see us and they know us. But none of us have been in a perfect family. Am I right? No matter how great yours was, no matter how awesome your parents were, they are not perfect, so you couldn't have been in a perfect family. And so all of us have to figure out how we are going to find spaces where we are seen, where we are known, and where we know that we belong. And one of the spaces that God has created for that is friendship, true friendship. If you look in dictionary.com, it says this. It defines a friend as a person attached to another by feelings of affection or personal regard. A person who gives assistance. A person who is on good terms with another. But if you look at that first description, a person attached to another by feelings of what? Affection. That's another word for love, isn't it? I read an article um, on a survey, an open survey that was done, and a couple of thousand people were surveyed on what they felt like an ideal friendship was. And the top six things that came out of it is that friendships are considered to exist when pleasure is taken in the company of another. When being with somebody becomes a duty rather than a, pre a preference, friendships begin to wane. Um, when you have to be loved by faith, it's difficult to make friends. An attraction to someone's character, sense of humor, value, spirit, heart, etc. An attraction. Do you know that friendship is a kind of attraction? We have affection. We have attraction. We're going to talk about this a lot more just now. Friendship requires reciprocity. It's a give and take. Support and assistance must flow both ways. True friends are there for crisis. Um, friends can be counted on to offer support regardless of inconvenience. Friendships are voluntary, and our friends are also making the choice to engage in the relationship. And one person wrote in the survey, I feel like my circle of friends are the family I chose. And then very important, mutual respect causes friendships to flourish. And I think most of us would agree that if we think about a true friendship, we want some of those characteristics, if not all of them, in that relationship, don't we? And that's an ideal friendship. However, when you look at the psychology of friendship, it, something very interesting emerges. Psychologists tell us that your best friend is the person you spend the most time with. 
The reason for that is for friendship to exist, you have to spend time together because when you spend time together, you, sh you start sharing experiences. You start going through stuff together. When you go through stuff together, you create a common history and a common language. Do you have those friends where you can just make eye contact across the room and start laughing? You've got a common language. But here's the problem with that. Because in a very real sense, maybe we are not choosing our friends. We are simply becoming friends with people that we are exposed to the most. And so what psychologists say is we, our best friends might not be the people we like the most in the world, but it's the ones that we have most access to. Yeah, let's think about that for a minute. So if you are that person who works till nine every single night, your best friends are going to be your work colleagues. And you're going to find yourself at the bar getting drunk because, well, you know, that's all we have time to do at nine at night before we have to go home and sleep. And so we need to be starting a lot more intentional around who we want to be friends with. You know that saying, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Yeah, it's real. <laughs> um, and also, to make a friend, you've got to be a friend. So when we listen to those six awesome things that sound like an ideal relationship, all of us actually have to do a quick little review on our own hearts. How are we at being a friend? Because remember, like I said, and we laughed, but it sadly is true, sometimes we need to be loved by faith. <laughs> and we can grow skills, we can get healed, we can figure out stuff about ourselves and the world that will make us way more open to people and to being loved. True friendships require that we are attracted to the character, the personality, and the personhood of the other. True friendship is actually, actually requires a level of vulnerability and intimacy from us. Today, friendships are in trouble in the world. We have downgraded friends to a verb. How many people did you friend this week? And we have totally won. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, we have downgraded friendship. And I want to talk to you about something. One of the reasons I believe that we are seeing a downgrade of friendship. And this is that we have to rethink intimacy. When I say intimacy, most people will start thinking about sex. Please don't. We're in church. Um, <laughs> But when I say the word intimacy, in our Western world, and yes, even South Africa is very influenced, we are part of the West, intimacy is almost exclusively sexual or romantic. That's how we use that word. That's why you don't hear it in a lot of spaces. That's why when we sing Christian songs that have the word intimacy in it, we get a bit awkward because we have literally made it synonymous with sex. It has never been like that in any other age. But in our age, it is, it, when I say intimacy, it means sex. And we can't really conceive of genuine intimacy without it being ultimately sexual. Romantic and sexual relationships are now the primary place we look for any kind of intimacy, and all the other forms of contact are relegated to a much lower space. We have embraced societal and cultural standards in the church regarding this. 
Because in the church today, we are also first and foremost busy trying to find the one. We are all looking for the one. We are all looking for the wife and the husband. We have made romance the highest possible human experience. The first time in history that that has ever been the case. I'm busy reading a book on singleness. I am single. I have never read a book on singleness. It's weird that I'm reading a book on singleness. But this one has been written very recently by a man called um, Sam Albury. And he's a British minister. He's also an older man who is single. But I've just never heard anybody take the Bible and just make it real to everything. And the first thing he says is that Paul, when he writes his letters, is that Paul writes letters to everybody. Single people didn't leave the room when they started reading stuff that was for married people. Married people didn't leave the room when they started reading stuff that was for single people. Everybody didn't leave the room when they started speaking to widows. Paul expects all of us to know what God says about widows, what God says about singles, what God says about marriage, what God says about family, because in the church, we are different from the world. You are a family. Um, Langa was stealing some of the points I wanted to make, but it's been such a growing revelation on me. Every single page of Paul's New Testament writing includes instructions about how to live in community, about how to live as a family. Christianity has never, ever been supposed to have been a private thing. It isn't. I mean, my relationship with God happens in my private space, but my Christianity is not private. It is communal. Because God and I can be tight like this. But how I deal with Lire and Ntando and Lareko and Jonathan tells me how tight God and I really are. I can feel like, man, I'm on fire, I'm rocking it, I'm praying in tongues three hours a day, people. But if you just by yourself three hours, I mean, all day, you're never going to get to practice faith. You're never going to figure out where your character actually is. You know, the reason these people on the front row are in my life is because we argue and we fight and we disagree and we make each other cry, but then we love each other and when problems come, we're there and we pray for each other and we call each other up and we call each other out. And that's how we figure out that what's going on here is fake because I don't know how to make it work here. And then we have to get real with God. And so, as I said, we have dragged society's expectation of marriage into the church, of relationships, of romance, of friendship, of singleness. There was a time in the church where single people who had chosen to be single, and the correct word is celibate, that means not having sex. They weren't just single so they could have all the sex, they were single so they wouldn't have any sex. They were considered the holiest and the highest standing in the church. And that isn't, well, it's not that long ago. It's like a thousand years ago, maybe, even sooner. Today, if you're single, you're nothing, you're useless, God can't use you. Well, I'm standing here as proof that that's just a big old lie. And so are all of you who are single in this room. What I loved about Sam Albury is as I'm reading this book, he says two things. He says, let me explain the point of singleness and the point of marriage. The point of singleness 
is to find my contentment in God. The point of marriage is to find my contentment in God. Some of you are shocked. Some of you don't believe me. Married people, just by a show of hands, how many of you would still be married without God in your life? <laughs> None of you want to do that. It's okay. I get that. We don't want to cause more problems. But being single is hard. Being married is hard. The only way you survive either of them is if God is in the first place of your life. And so many of us are lonely. I deal, I counsel men, and I've been, as I've been traveling around the world, I've even got to counsel marriages because I am coming across lonely people everywhere I go. And as a single person, I am lonely sometimes. But when I meet married people who are lonely in their marriage, somehow it's the worst kind of loneliness. And part of the issue is that we believe one person can fulfill everything we need. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is anti-biblical. Marriage is very specific. It is exclusive and it is a covenant. It is looking somebody in the eye and saying, you will be my person forever. And there is very specific um, responsibilities and purposes to marry, to bring forth children in holiness, to commit yourself to one person that you will be responsible for your whole life. It is, and it is covenantal. And that covenant is ratified through the sexual act. This is why God is so strong about not having sex before marriage. I can't wait. Sam Albury's writing, written a new book. It's coming out in March. And it's called, Why Does God Care So Much About Who I Sleep With? And I think every millennial has ever asked that question. We're going to find out together in March. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to tell you. But even as I'm reading this book on singleness, I haven't heard somebody teach so powerfully about sexual purity. And, he, he, and he's made me see, I mean, I knew it, but I can see it again. Jesus taught us this. Paul took it to even greater levels. And we've got to break out of this thing that only one person is going to meet every one of my needs. Sex is for marriage. It is not for anything else. If you're expressing your sexuality in any way outside of marriage, in any way, the Bible calls it sin. I'm not making that up. God's standards are high, but then His grace comes in and He helps us to live them. And when we make the mistake of thinking that romance is going to satisfy every one of my emotional needs, we go to sex way quicker than we should. And there's a reality in the world where you can have as much sex as you want and absolutely no intimacy. And so we make the mistake of thinking... When sex is in marriage and when there's deep love and commitment and covenant, it can be highly intimate, highly enhancing to your intimacy. But it by itself is not intimate. And I think also we come to marriage and exactly what I said, we think this is going to be our friend forever. This is my best friend forever. There has to be an aspect of friendship in marriage. But that isn't the point of marriage. And so couples need couples' friends. And families need family friends. And ladies need female friends. And men need male friends. And all of us need friends. <laughs> and many, 
Because sometimes your wife doesn't want to go hunting with you, no matter how much you want her to. And sometimes your husband really doesn't care about the latest housewives marathon, no matter how much you want him to. So you better find people that you can share that with and laugh with and then come back to each other and have stories to tell. And all of us need that. And singles better be hanging out with other singles. Now, men are quite unique in friendship, and the world is in an interesting space with men. Wesley Hill notes um, the glut of recent bromance movies that illustrates a deepening awareness of how many men in particular now feel about friendship. And he writes, the awkwardness of, this is what you see in these bromance movies, the awkwardness of two men trying to achieve some kind of emotional closeness to love each other without saying a word and at the same time avoiding getting confused as a couple, it's really a tough gig. A really tough gig. And so the world has made it impossible for us to actually feel affection and attraction to people in a non-romantic, non-sexual way. And we need to get back to those words. You are attracted to your best friend. You don't want to have sex with them, no. But you think there's something great about them. You think there's something in their heart or their character that's amazing, and you want to be around it. The only word to describe that is attraction. Get over yourselves. (laughs) Try harder. Um, And friends, friendship is a kind of love. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book called The Four Loves, and he pulls the, the, the four words for love out of the Bible. And one of them is phileo. It means brother. And, they, and it is spoken about in the Bible as a kind of love, an affection, an emotion of caring for somebody. It's natural. It is God-ordained. It is built into us, and we need to go after it. In November of 2018, we celebrated the centenary of the end of World War I. Can you believe it? When I was going to school, primary school, high school, high school in the 80s, we were still learning about the First World War, and it wasn't that far away. Some people were still alive who'd fought in it. But in November of 2018, we celebrated 100 years of the end of World War I, and the BBC radio did a show And in that show, they read extracts of letters and diaries from soldiers written to each other. And what came out of this was the deep camaraderie, the deep friendship, and the deep love these men forged for each other in the absolute horror and hardship that they were facing living in the trenches and fighting an enemy. Um, And you would think that that would be really moving and encouraging. But when they opened up the lines for people to comment, a whole lot of people just made the thing, oh, well, they were obviously gay. And why did they say that? Because they could see the obvious affection and love in the way they were writing to each other, in how they thought about each other, about how they wanted to encourage each other. And because there was intimacy, they immediately went straight to sex. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves writes this, Those who cannot conceive friendship as a substantive love, but only as a disguise or elaboration of eros, betray the fact that they have never had a friend. That is hard. So what is he saying? If we cannot conceive that friendship is a substantive love, a love that stands in its own right, that it isn't just confused or as an elaboration of eros, of eroticism, of sex, 
that our culture imagines that intimacy occurs only in the context of sexual attraction goes to show how little our culture actually understands and really experiences true friendships. The Bible gives a very different perspective. We have to be different. Intimacy and sex, while often overlapping, are not identical, nor are they always concurrent. As I said, it is possible to have a lot of sex and no intimacy. Maybe King David is an example of this for us. Pastor Rico spoke about this verse I'm about to read a couple of weeks ago, and he did so well, and I want to just expand that a little. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26 says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman. Now, when you go and read 2 Samuel chapter 1, you will realize that this verse is in the context of a, of a hymn, of a hymn that David wrote mourning the loss of King Saul and Jonathan, his friend. Now, we're surprised because you know that Saul tried to kill David. Saul kind of hated David. And David went into exile for how many years? 12 years, 15 years? A long time. Um, because he was actually crowned king of Israel already, but Saul was still sitting on the throne. And David was such an honorable man that he knew God's heart, and he refused to touch Saul. He had quite a few opportunities, three at least that I know of, where he could have killed Saul and taken the crown. But because he feared God, he would not do that, because somewhere in Scripture it says, touch not my anointed. I think David might have even written that, but that was his heart. He knew that God had put him on that throne, and he wasn't going to do anything to, to destroy his relationship with God. But I also think when I read that, that hymn again this, this afternoon, I was realizing that David loved Saul. There was a moment where they had a good relationship. There was a moment where Saul might have been like a father figure to David. And so when he writes with him, he's mourning both of them who have died in a battle, two strong men that David loved. Doesn't make sense to us, but David obviously forgave Saul because he mourns him in this thing. And in the middle of it, after mourning Saul, he says this, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And in our modern understanding, we cannot read that language without thinking that they must have enjoyed a sexual relationship. But Sam Albury gives some insight. He says this, at the time that he lamented the loss of his friend David. David had, I mean, his loss of his friend Jonathan. David had three wives, Abigail, Ahinoam, and Michal. But all of them were very complicated. Michal was his first wife, and she was one of Saul's daughters, and she was given to him as a reward after he was victorious in battle. Imagine coming home and <laughs> your king's like, well done, here's a woman, woo! <laughs> and something wasn't right in their relationship because later on we watch how Michal, David's wife, possibly the most intimate person in his life, looks out the window when he's dancing wildly in his undergarments, possibly naked, and she judges him so severely in her heart that God makes her barren. She never gives David a son. Can you see, there's something not right in that relationship. Now, Lareko can help me here, but when I, when I try to find out more about Ahinoam, nobody's 100% sure, but she might be David's literal mother-in-law, the mother of Michal. When he went into exile, Michal stayed with Saul. She stayed in his household. Somehow, David collected Ahinoam, his mother-in-law. How weird is that? 
Talk about complicated. And then there's Abigail, and Pastor Lareko did such a great job a couple of weeks ago just giving us a bit more of her character. She was clever, she was sharp, she was an amazing woman, she was very shrewd though, and she came up with a plan of getting her husband killed, not too illegally, so she could marry King David. So she had a plan and she went after it. And even in the way they got together, as great as she was, there was still a bit of manipulation. And so what if when David is writing these words about Jonathan, what he's actually telling us is not that he had sex with Jonathan, but that having sex with the woman in his life had no intimacy, that it was really complicated and difficult, as marriages can be. I mean, I also think it says only ever have one wife at a time, please. (laughs) That just makes life complicated. And Ed Shaw, who's commenting on this, says, Why is it not possible that he enjoyed the non-sexual intimacy of his friendship with Jonathan, also a married man and a father, more than the sexual intimacy of relationship with Abigail, Ahinam, and Michal, because it was so complicated? And so, guys, I want to challenge you to step out and to find affectionate relationships with other men, men that you admire, that you are attracted to, not sexually, but emotionally, something you see in them. And I want to honor Lareko at this moment because over the last five years, we've got to know each other so much better. And he is an amazing man, and he is a great man. And we see him in so many of his gifts. But just as a person, he is great. And God has, has blessed him with a lot. And we've really come to love each other. And there has been... <laughs> I love you, bro. Love you too, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and we call each other out, we fight, we disagree, we slam doors, but we come together because our friendship is so valuable to each of us. At a time, I helped Lareko understand what emotions were, <laughs> to the point where he actually went and bought a book, he brought the book back to me, it's a great book, if any men out there need to know what emotions are and how you figure them out, get that book, it was amazing. And he's been on a journey, and that's how we've helped each other, and he's helped me with many things. And guys, I also want to say this, ladies as well, do you know what? Sometimes we get into romance because that's where we feel the most feminine or the most masculine. That's the only place we feel feminine and masculine. But that's a lie from the devil. Do you know that for women, you will only find true femininity with other women? Especially older women or women who are a little more experienced than you. Guys, it is exactly the same. If you are trying to find your masculinity with a woman, you are going to just be in serial relationships the whole time. The only way you find masculinity is with the company of other men. Men who are struggling and trying to figure it out. But then get some older guys in, some guys who've walked the road. Learn masculinity. You will not catch it from the opposite gender. When you have it and you go back to the opposite gender, that's when you get courageous and brave and you ask them to marry you and you make families. And that's awesome. So I think we've done the story of David and you understand that there is no way they were sexual, but that we need that kind of emotional relationship in our lives. And so how do we experience intimacy in friendships? Proverbs 18 verse 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Today we have many companions. We feel like we have many companions. We've got people to hang out with. We can go to so many places and there's always people around. But when when you need something, 
when you need affirmation that you are loved, that you are seen, that you are recognized, those companions aren't going to help you with that. And in the midst of all that companionship, you might come to ruin. But there is a brother who sticks, I mean, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's the kind of friend we want in our lives. In fact, maybe two or three if we can manage it. This friend is someone who sees us and knows us and loves us. This friend is someone we can laugh with and cry with. This friend is somebody who will challenge us and call us up to our purpose and our identity in God. Who wants a friend like that? Yes, I'm blessed to have a few of those in my life, and it is amazing. I didn't always. And my 20s were a nightmare because of that, because I was desperately trying to be seen, and so I was doing all kinds of crazy things to fill up that void. But at the same time, if we want friends like that, we need to be friends like that. Are you willing to be a friend like that? Because it requires effort. You can't hide away. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable. And even as I'm saying this, and it's a bit late in the sermon to bring it up, but it kind of just fitted in here, is that when we read Proverbs 18, verse 24, whoever wrote this, Solomon or whoever it was, is actually prophesying to Jesus. Who is the friend who sticks closer than a brother? Well, Jesus. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus speaks and he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is our friend. Are we his? Jesus is intimate with us. He's vulnerable with us. Whatever he hears his father saying, he makes known to us. Jesus is so vulnerable that he chose to hang stark, naked, bloodied beyond recognition on a cross so we could be his friend. Jesus has sacrificed himself. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Nobody will do for us what he has done. But as I said, he is our friend, but are we his? And this is so important, because if I'm, going to learn how to be, if I'm going to learn how to be somebody else's friend, I better know how to be Jesus' friend. And how do I learn how to be his friend? Well, I copy him. I imitate him. What does he do with me? Let me do with that. Do I disclose everything I think and feel and understand to him? You know, in my prayer life, I realized I wasn't Jesus' friend because I would come to prayer panicked and stressed out and all I would do is beg and plead and beg and plead and beg and plead. And I realized I never beg my friends for anything. I just say to them, I want to go to movies, I'm lonely tonight. And then they say, yes, I can or no, I can't. (laughs) But I'm honest and they're honest back. I know now that if I start begging and pleading Jesus, there's something wrong with my friendship. The other reason that we need to learn how to be friends with Jesus is this, because this is who he is. Matthew 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. They were insulting him, saying he is a friend of sinners, because in Jewish culture, that made him unclean. But that is actually one of his highest titles. Because guess what? If he wasn't a friend of sinners, you and I wouldn't be here. Because we are sinners saved by grace. And that world out there needs friends. 
It needs you and me to be their friend, just like Jesus was. But we worry about that because we are tempted by the same things they are. Because we feel like if we put ourselves in that place, we're not going to look different. And this is why us pushing into friendship with Jesus is so vital. So that when we go where they are, we don't drink like they drink. We don't speak like they speak. We don't sleep around like they sleep around. We show them our friendship with Jesus and we love them. And we can introduce them to a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Biblically, the marks of, of real friendship hold two things. They are not fleeting. They are long-lasting, and they are not superficial. They are deep. Proverbs 17, verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So families are great. Who knows, who's got that family that if you're sick, they will take you to hospital? That, you know, if money is, they will put something in your account. If you've got those families, celebrate them. Phone them tonight, say thank you for who they are. That's amazing. But who knows that sometimes family comes with a whole lot of baggage and that you know there's just stuff you don't talk about. I still feel like when I go home, like my dad still says this, like after how long have I lived out of the house? Are you sleeping here tonight? Um, you know, they live 40 minutes from me. It's like, no, dad, I've got my own house. I'm going home, you know? Um, so families are like brilliant for adversity. They can be really brilliant for adversity. But guess what? You get to choose your friends. And if you choose right, <laughs> you can talk to them about everything. All the stuff you're not allowed to talk about at home, you can tell them all of that stuff and they can help you. So a friend is there always, forever. If you are a friend with your family, that is fantastic. Celebrate that. That is awesome. But make sure you also choose some outward friends because maybe you haven't realized yet in your family there are things you can't talk about and you need that friend. And so they are not fleeting. They are lasting. Proverbs 27 verse 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. They are not superficial. Find people to laugh with, find, but you better have people to cry with. Find people you can tell anything to, but they will slap you up the side of the head if you need it. They will challenge you. You see, this kind of friend knows your soul. This is a soul-to-soul -soul friendship, and this cannot happen without openness and vulnerability, which is one of the hallmarks of biblical friendship. And as I finish, a friend is someone you can tell your secrets to and let in on the things that are going on in your life. They know your temptations. They know the delights of your heart. They know how to pray for you instinctively. This is true intimacy. In our world, we have been, tr uh, in our world, we have been taught that, we, that to be truly loved and to be truly known are exclusive. You can only be one or the other. And that's a lie the enemy loves to tell us. In friendship, we can be fully ourselves and fully loved. But we need to be people who are willing to do that. And so as I've been preaching, I want you just to close your eyes and just examine your heart for a moment. First and foremost, where are you in your friendship with Jesus? How have you been in your friendship with Jesus? And where you are, just go to him and just tell him, I want to be your friend. If you need to repent of something, just do it right now. He's your friend. He will receive you. He's that friend who sticks closer than a brother. Lord Jesus, would you just give us a fresh revelation of your friendship to us right now? 
And God, even beyond the cross, the fact that right now you are looking straight into our eyes, that we are the apple of your eye, that you love us, Lord. And where you are, just begin to receive the love of his friendship. It's real for you tonight. And then secondly, just take a moment and think about where you are with friends. Have you just become friends with people or have you chosen friends? How are you as a friend? Are you making the effort? Are you willing to take the time that it takes to build a friendship? Father, would you help us with this, Lord God? We are lonely tonight. God, I want to ask you to come with fresh boldness and fresh conviction that, God, we are going to take responsibility for that, God, that we're going to work until we find those friends who want to be our friends, Lord God. We are not going to accept loneliness, Lord, and we're not going to accept the lie of the enemy that we don't deserve to be loved. And, Father God, would you give us courage? Would you give us boldness? Would you give us unction to get up and go and find those friends and be friends and love them, Lord? We ask for that in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.